This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 78. Today we welcome back John Fesco, this time to discuss his book, The Rule of Love. Christ the Center is listener-supported. To read more about how you can contribute and help us with our server and bandwidth costs, please visit reformedforum.org support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today Nicholas T. Batzig, or as he's going today, uh, N.T. Batzig uh, from Richmond Hill, Georgia. He's a church planner there just outside Savannah. It's great to have you on, N.T. Thanks, Camden. <laughs> you did this to yourself. Uh, we also have Jeff Waddington, who's a, who is a teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. It's great to have you back, Jeff. Oh, it's good to be here. And our special guest today, we're very pleased to have back on the program, John Fesco, who's academic dean and associate professor of systematics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's written a new book entitled The Rule of Love, and that's going to be the subject of conversation today. But we are very pleased to have you back, John. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. Well, yeah, we're excited, too. We've got some people in the chat room listening, and Reformation Heritage Books is going to be giving out two free copies to people in the chat room. They're also offering a special deal to those who are listening live. But for those who are listening to the podcast version, uh, they're going to be offering a 40% discount. If you want to get the book for only $9, uh, you must be one of the first 50 participants and go to heritagebooks.org. By July 31st, 2009, you order the Rule of Love and use the coupon code FESCO, that's F-E-S-K-O, uh, you're going to save 40% and get the book for $9. Uh, so again, just go to heritagebooks.org, order the book The Rule of Love, use coupon code FESCO, F-E-S-K-O, and you're going to get it for 9 bucks if you're one of the first 50 and you do it before July 31st. So we encourage you to go and we want to thank Reformation Heritage Books for offering this deal to all the listeners of Christ the Center. Oh, well, well where do we start? This is a lovely little book. Uh, I was reading through it last night, and uh, it's really an explanation. or um, It's dealing with each of the commandments in the Decalogue. Uh, but, John, you have an interesting approach, and I think an appropriate approach, but it's a yeah. particularly Reformed and Biblical theological approach to addressing the Ten Commandments, and there are so many different interpretations and so many different ways to position and approach the law that we absolutely need to situate it correctly in relation to Christ and in relation to us as we are united to Him. I just wanted to ask you, uh, as we get started, I guess the, gen- the generic question to get started is why, why you wanted to write this, uh, this l- little book about the Ten Commandments and why you think it's so important uh, that we get the Ten Commandments right as Reformed believers? I uh, originally began the book as part of a series. I was uh, I used to jokingly or somewhat jokingly say to my congregation that I was preaching through the Pentateuch, and it was an ongoing series through the Pentateuch, but at the particular time we were going through Exodus and, of course, came upon the law, and so I wanted to make sure that uh, the congregation understood the law because I think so many people approach it in terms of uh, simply, this is what I have to do. And uh, I've seen and read a number of expositions, whether in listening to other sermons or perhaps reading a book or two here or there, uh, that exposited the law uh, somewhat um, uh, in terms of just uh, legal responsibility. Uh, and I kept on asking the question, what about Christ? Uh, what, what, what is his relationship to the law? And how has he fulfilled it on our behalf? And and then not only that, but how is he also fulfilling it in us through the uh, application of the work of redemption uh, through the work of the Spirit in us? And so uh, I wanted to make sure that the Church, as we went through uh, each of the commandments, not only understood uh, the law in terms of uh, each individual commandment's requirements for uh, the Israelites in their own setting, uh, but also to see how uh, Israel corporately was supposed to ultimately point forward to Christ and mm. his obedience. And, you know, in that sense, it sets up the uh, the contrast 
between type and anti-type or uh, foreshadow and reality of Israel's disobedience to the law, but then uh, in terms of collectively as a nation, but then uh, pointing forward to Christ's obedience uh, to the law uh, and every jot and tittle. So that's kind of just a rough sketch, if you will, as to uh, the, the overall intent and why I wanted to do things the way that I did. Uh, so hopefully that, that helps a little. Oh, absolutely. And it's so important as Reformed people just to hold on to the third use of the law. Could you just explain that distinctive and why, how that differentiates the Reformed community from other, other communities? Yes, in terms of the third use of the law, it's uh, understanding the the use that uh, you know. Well, depending on who you're reading, second use, first use of the law is the um, the civic civic use uh, that which informs. Uh, the, uh, the the world around us in terms of its requirements uh, to, to God. The second use, that which drives us to Christ and, convic- and the conviction of sin. But then the third use in terms of that which helps us to know what is pleasing to God and, and it, what, how the law is useful uh, to the believer in that sense. And I think that uh, at least as I heard it explained to me by individuals, again, you often hear them talk of the third use of the law, but uh, very little, if any, reference to Christ and so I just thought it was so important to say, look, this is how Christ has fulfilled the law, and this is also not only a picture of Christ's obedience, but ultimately if we're being remade in Christ's image uh, through our redemption, then this, not only, you know, not only Christ's obedience is featured here, but this is also a portrait as to what our obedience as Christians should look like as those who are bearing uh, that renewed image of Christ. Uh, And so as we reflect upon the law uh, through Christ, it shows us who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like, what our uh, ethics, what our conduct should look like, uh, but ultimately never severed from uh, from Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really where the where the title of your book comes from as well, that the law is much more than just a legal bond. And we do have to situate it historically. We have to mm-hmm. situate it covenantally and then redemptive historically in Christ, as you've, that's, that's, those are the three ways you're really approaching it here in the book. But then that's, that's really where the title comes from. It's more than a legal bond, but it's a rule of love. Could you explain that? How is the law love? I mean, it doesn't make sense to people who might listen, because the law brings death, right? Sure. Yes, it's, it's, I think it's, maybe it goes back, I'm sure it goes back earlier, but at least what comes to mind is, say, 19th and 18th century uh, theologians uh, say, um, oh, the name eludes me at present, I'll probably think about it in the next minute, but he wrote a book on justification uh, where he, you know, you often find his tendency of splitting or dividing uh, the legal from the filial uh, categories and saying that something can either be legal or something must be filial. You can't have both, but you find both, I think, coalescing in Christ when he is God's son and, uh, and, and is the son, one who loves the Father, but at the same time he was also born under the law uh, there, and you see that legal requirement. And so in this sense, I, you know, that's one of the things, and I, I got some helpful uh, feedback uh, from uh, Jay Collier, who's the director of publishing at Reformation Heritage, really to to tease that uh, that theme out a little bit more, and that's to show that, uh, yes, the law is certainly a legal bond, but at the same time, one of the things you see, and you see this in Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, you see this in Matthew 22.37, with Christ emphasizing what is the first and greatest commandment, and that is that the legal is ultimately uh, bound together uh, with the filial, or at least that a- aspect of the law in terms of that it's an expression of love, that we obey out of love. Uh, for God and for Christ, uh, rather than out of simply a, a, a desire for uh, to be duty bound, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's something that's highlighted. Out my, my wife and I were listening in the car yesterday with our son uh, to uh, some uh, Sunday school CD of some sort, and the, it was saying that uh, God is watching me, and the reason I'm not going to take the cookie is because He's watching. Uh, rather than and every time we hear that, we both look at each other and say, well, gee, we think you should want to not take the cookie <laughs> because you love the Lord, not right. just because you don't want to get caught. Right. And I think that that little snapshot, I think, really helps us. Or it helps me, too, especially to, to keep that in mind, that ultimately the obedience should be an expression of love uh, and not just of mm-hmm. legal duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, John, was that the author that you were thinking of, Ritual? That's it. Thank you. <laughs> I knew yeah. it would come to me. It would come to me or come to one of you guys. So yes, definitely, Ritual. 
Now, um, how how do you see the um, what different? And this is a generic question, but what what big difference does uh, Christ having come made made for our understanding of how to uh, benefit from the uh, the law? Uh, that's a big question. I know it, but uh, sure. Practically speaking. Yeah, I know this. I know these points. At least one or two of these points are somewhat uh, have been somewhat hotly contended over the years. But I think that you see the principle of the law is in terms of do this and live. Leviticus eighteen five. Right. And if you don't, well, then you suffer the curse of the law. And uh, I think that Paul and in, in Galatians three uh, really, I think, highlights the nature of the curse of the law for us, and that he, and that so many people, I think, approach the law in terms of direct application, what do I need to do? Uh, and they do so, I think, with good intention, but nevertheless, they do so not realizing that if they approach the law, uh, for lack of a better expression here, if they approach the law nakedly, uh, apart from Christ, they don't realize that it simply brings uh, curse and judgment. But on the other hand, if they look at the law through Christ and recognizing that not only has Christ come to fulfill the law on our behalf, but he's also borne the curse for us. Uh, so that in that sense, the law is no longer uh, the harbinger of death. The law is no longer our end. Rather, the law can be our friend in that sense, uh, or in terms of the third use of the law through Christ. And I think we see that uh, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, where uh, Paul tells us that you know Christ comes and fulfills the law on our behalf, and so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And I think that's that's just a huge thing. I mean, it sounds like a simple, uh, simple. It sounds like a simple question, but and maybe even echoes that commercial from the uh, '80s with Wendy's. Where's the beef? Yeah. But uh, where's Jesus? <laughs> it's just I always want to ask my, that question, and I always want to ask uh, that of my, you know, my congregation in the past is, what about Christ, and what difference does Christ make uh, for, the, for the scriptures, for the law, or for whatever? You know? you know, John, I think that's really interesting that you've approached it this way, because for years now I've been in discussions with guys about this issue and have found that so many will rush to a third use of the law the way that you say, even, I mean, guys in seminary, in our seminaries, saying, well, third use, it's a rule of obedience, and yet uh, larger Catechism 97 in mm-hmm. the Confession says, of what special use is the moral law to the regenerate? And they say, although they are regenerate and believe in Christ, they be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, mm-hmm. so that they are neither justified nor condemned. And then they say it's of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for, for fulfilling it, for right. enduring the curse in their stead, and for their good, and then to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in greater care and obedience. So right. basically, they start with the gospel. They say that Christ had to keep it, he had to take the curse, and then... And, and so the third use has to be bound up in an evangelical obedience um, yes. to the Lord for re- well, who redeemed us. Well, wouldn't yes. you say that then that, that, would, that would mean that really it's a, a second and third use in combination? Well, I think second and a, I mean, it depends on, and again, I've heard different people explain it this way, but second use in one sense lies dormant once we become believers because we're free from that condemnation. Um, you no longer we no longer we no longer have that condemnation. That's not to say that we can't still reflect upon the second use of the law, uh, but I think we no longer right. once we cross that threshold and we be, or we're united to Christ and we're in union with Him, then that second use no longer has that the same I guess threat or the same bite that it once did. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think we can still and should still obviously reflect upon the second use of the law constantly, uh, just to show that. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I've sat under a number of sermons over the years, even from uh, good friends and colleagues who would emphasize third use of the law, and I'd walk away and I thought I'd never heard Christ in that sermon. Right. Uh, right. So that that was the one thing I definitely wanted to to emphasize is that not only Christ, but in terms of our obedience, our union with Christ is ultimately uh, that uh, that source of our obedience. So. Now, 
Now, you you sort of approached this at the beginning of your book by looking at the preface of the Mm -hmm. Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Could you talk to our listeners about your particular understanding of why that preface is important, that prologue? Sure. I think, uh, again, I I know I say this in the book that, uh, and I'm sure you've seen these things in the media over the years, that people would try to have uh, monuments, stone monuments of the sword, what have you. In terms of, uh, over the years, I've seen a number of uh, attempts in the press and what have you uh, by well-intending Christians to place monuments of uh, the Ten Commandments, whether in schools or whether in courthouses or the like. And one of the things that I often noticed about uh, these uh, placards or monuments, whatever they were, is that they they didn't have the prologue. And I thought so often that uh, as people said, well, we're just trying to get back to our Judeo-Christian roots, uh, that it was uh, that the prologue says so much more and gives us so much in terms of context. It tells us who it is that uh, delivered Israel, that it was uh, Yahweh, uh, the, the one true God, uh, the God that is spoken of and written of in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, not only that, but it, it shows uh, Israel uh, and it shows us that uh, he did not redeem them from Egypt uh, because they were obedient, uh, but rather because of his love for them and because of his covenant promises to them, the covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and so in that respect, I think that the, the getting the prologue uh, sets uh, the covenantal cast to the law that it's been given within covenant, and then the, there's that natural question I think that that comes out of that is, well, is is Sinai uh, is is the law the the, the terminal goal, uh, or is there something more? And obviously the answer is, of course, there's something more, and that something more is Christ, uh, who has come, who is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Uh, and I, I think that with the prologue, that that really pushes us in that direction. And that apart from the prologue, it kind of shores the uh, Ten Commandments from its historic, from its covenantal, and from its redemptive moorings. Uh, and it all of a sudden becomes some sort of um, ethic that, uh, that is somewhat divorced from the scriptures and divorced even from uh, our redemption. And I'm not saying that everyone who removes the prologue winds up there, but I think certainly those tendencies uh, are, are there and present. Now, at one point, John, I think it's on your exposition of the second commandment, you actually mm-hmm. allude to, and it's a very it's a very slight allusion to Israel almost being dealt with corporately as to their obedience to the commandments. Is that Was I correct in reading that? And then why is that important in light of um, what you're, you're suggesting about the Christocentricity of the law? Right. Well, in a nutshell, I think that if we look at Israel and consider that Israel is called God's son uh, in Exodus 4.22 or Hosea 11.1. And so we see this. And so that naturally, I think, leads us in the direction of, well, who is ultimately God's only son uh, or his only begotten son? And uh, I think that that obviously points us to Christ. And that, I think, sets up a dynamic between uh, Israel, the nation, and Christ as the Israel of God in the sense that we see Israel's collective disobedience uh, to the law, but then we see Christ's uh, obedience uh, to the law and even the fulfillment of of the law in terms of Christ's uh, perfect obedience. And I think that that if we keep that dynamic in mind, I hope, at least it's my intention, that every time we look at the law then, uh, we're reminded of Israel's disobedience as well as our own, uh, and then driven to Christ's obedience, uh, and then also reminded that 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 is uh, that Christ is the source uh, of our obedience uh, through the work of the Spirit. Uh, and so, uh, constantly, or hopefully, at least hopefully, that, that's my intention is that we're constantly driven to the gospel in that respect. Right. Mm-hmm. Now you have mentioned uh, earlier Galatians three eighteen through twenty six, and we are driven to Christ. But I wanted to ask you about the law's function as a guardian or a schoolmaster, and what Paul's really getting at in Galatians 3. How does or how has the law functioned as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ, and does it still have that function today? Yes. Um, you know, that's that's a good question in terms of, is it dealing with uh, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, or is Paul talking there as the law, as a, as a guardian in right. a redemptive historical sense? 
And uh, sometimes I, I go back and forth, and I think maybe it leads me to the conclusion that I think it can serve both ends. Um, and so that, you know, sure, the law is in place there until Christ arrives. Uh, so in a certain sense, uh, the law can no longer function in that respect, uh, because one of the things that I try to m- emphasize in the book is that uh, we weren't at Sinai. We weren't standing there at the sands of Sinai uh, to make that covenant. We did not have uh, Moses sprinkle us with blood. Uh, and so in that respect, I think redemptive historically, the law cannot um, serve in that function anymore because Christ has come. You know, so that I, I ask that question once again to myself and to others. What about Jesus? <laughs> what difference does Jesus make since he has come in respect to the law? But I think in terms of, um, in terms of uh, the, 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 the law uh, holding us down in terms of showing us our inability uh, to... Um, uh, our inability to, to obey the law or, or its, its constant and rigorous demands, I think certainly that functions in terms of the order of salvation, not only prior to, um, prior to our uh, regeneration, but obviously in the midst of that regeneration as we're being awakened by the, by the, the Holy Spirit and, and with the uh, gospel, that we see our, our uh, inability to fulfill the law. But also in, in terms of um, uh, our Christian life, I think it also can function in that respect. As to what Paul is emphasizing, I, I tend to think that he's uh, emphasizing the redemptive historical there, but again, as I say, I kind of uh, wrestle with that one back and forth as to which one has the emphasis. But at least today and this morning, it seems that I'd put the emphasis on the redemptive historical with a secondary uh, em- emphasis on the uh, order of salvation. Um, I was just going to ask, actually, in light of that question of the redemptive historical dimension, um, the fourth commandment is obviously the big commandment in our culture. I'm, I'm a Sabbatarian. I'm unashamedly so. I take vows to uphold the teaching of the confession on the fourth commandment. I know the guys on this show do as well. Um, sure. And yet, if we're honest, there's a redemptive historical dimension. I think I, I found Turretin to be most helpful on that, that there was a ceremonial aspect. And you deal, I actually thought your chapter on the, on the Sabbath was, was outstanding. Could you talk about some of the redemptive historical dimensions of the Sabbath, what, what's the same, what's different, and why, um, and why we ought to be upholding the Fourth Commandment today? I know that's a lot of questions in one. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I'll see if I can't give a shotgun blast answer here, and, and we'll pick <laughs> up the answer out of, out of all of the pieces. In that, yes, I think you're absolutely right. There certainly is, uh, and I know the standards say this, but there's a, a ceremonial aspect to it, or perhaps we might want to say, you could say ceremonial or maybe typological aspect to it, in that um, it's a rest, uh, a period of rest at the end uh, of the week, and that's something that we as the people of God no longer take. And the reason I think we no longer take that rest is because at least the pattern that we find in the Old Testament scriptures is work first and then rest. And I think that you find the work first and rest second pattern because the work had yet to have been done. Uh, but once Christ comes and accomplishes the work, then that means that the way into that rest is now opened to us uh, by faith in Christ. And so that's why I think we find the, um, the rest first and then the, um, the work. So we work in the knowledge uh, that it has been accomplished, and that's why we, we have our rest that uh, begins our work week uh, rather than uh, ends it. Uh, again, uh, emphasizing the, uh, the, the finality of the, the finished work of Christ. And so I think that you see that, that shift from the last day of the week to the first day of the week um, in in the fourth commandment, so I think that there's certainly that 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 there's that aspect there that we have to recognize. It asks this and Christ, uh, what what significant work of Christ to to the law? So I, does that does that I think get at your question a bit? It does, and you dealt with in your chapter the the reason why people were stoned in the Old Testament for Sabbath breaking. Could you just and that's, right. that would finish all my my questions. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that so many people look at that uh, in terms of that law, and I can remember preaching that one time. 
uh, and just seeing a grimace or two, um, a genuine grimace or two in the congregation, and that it seemed like they just couldn't understand as to why someone would be uh, stoned for s- something as seemingly uh, innocuous or seemingly simple as uh, picking up some sticks on the Sabbath. And it just seems that that plays into the whole idea of this is the angry God of the Old Testament. And one of the things I definitely wanted to convey, especially in reflecting upon the fourth commandment, is no, uh, far be it, the God is not the angry God of the Old Testament, but that this is a foreshadow uh, here. If If the seventh day is the foreshadow, or at least is a taste of that eternal rest to come, then the reason that people were stoned in the Old Testament is because they were sending a message uh, to the people around them and perhaps even to the nations around them that you enter this rest by your labor. Uh, You enter it by your works. And God was saying, no, uh, you don't enter it by your labor. You enter it by my redemption. You enter it by my grace. Uh, And so that's why you rest on this day, because this is a day of rest this is a day that foreshadows, that is, 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 is anticipating that eternal rest to come. And you don't enter that eternal rest by, my, by, by your work, but rather by my grace, ultimately through the grace of my, uh, the work of my Son. And so uh, that, I think, is ultimately a, a, a visual picture, that stoning uh, on the fourth, uh, I'm sorry, the, of the fourth commandment and the death penalty for that is a visual picture of the wages of sin is death. Yes. Uh, that, what Paul says there. And, and uh, that, that picture is a foreshadow of the eternal death that is to come, that if we try to enter uh, the eternal rest now in the wake of Christ, um, uh, the advent of Christ, if we try to enter that eternal rest through our labors, we won't suffer mere stoning, uh, but rather we suffer eternal death. Uh, so I think that that penalty there uh, in respect to the fourth commandment was just a foreshadow of that eternal punishment that is to come. So I, I like to tell the members, or at least I used to tell members of my church, that if we think that the penalties for the law have been lessened uh, since Moses, we're sorely mistaken, because in the wake of Christ, as the author of Hebrews likes to tell, tell us, uh, you know, that if we didn't listen to the, to the law and to the two witnesses and to the penalties there, well, how much more do we think that we will suffer uh, seeing that now, it is now Christ who has spoken? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right. Yeah, that, that's, that's the dynamic that I wanted people to pick up on and to see. There's a, spiritual, a spiritualizing and an eternalizing of the mm-hmm. theocratic sanction in the New Covenant. But that doesn't ever right. take away from the actual historical, and we should never take away from what actually happened in and the law's Correct. particular function with the nation. That's what I love about that type right. of approach. That's where Voss is so helpful yeah. in this, t- this side of right. type of thing. And the revelation of Christ is organic, so you can have, yes. you can have everything going on there. I wanted to ask you, this is maybe a little bit, eh, bit off-topic, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you about Meredith Klein's approach to the Mosaic economy. And he seems to have a two-level approach in that the law functions uh, on one level for national Israel, and therefore, keeping the law for the nation always involves strictly typological blessings in the land. But then also it, it, it involves some individual level in which, or I mean, and on the national level, it is a republication of the covenant of works. But on the individual level, you still have people who, who are driven to Christ and, uh, and uh, people who are under Abraham, the, the overarching covenant of grace. Uh, have you read much Klein on that, and what what is your particular take? Because I know Westminster, California, has written this recent book on the uh, the uh, the law is not of faith, and I wondered your particular view on that. Right, uh, just one minor correction: the the law is not of faith. That was edited uh, by myself and Brian yes. Estelle and Dave Van Drun, and and it's not associated. Specifically okay, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. Uh, but yeah, that's not the first time I've heard that, so I just want to make it clear that that's that's not the seminary's uh, publication. But I no, hope no, that they no. would like it. <laughs> yes. But you know, I, I'm not I'm not a Klein expert, and that may surprise some people because they, I am indebted to a number of insights that he has made over a lot of his writings. But uh, and I'm I'm reluctant to comment particularly in respect to Klein because I know that. Um, and this shows my ignorance of Klein's theology, in that I know that there's been some differences uh, from, say, when he wrote um, uh, uh, By Oath Consigned versus mm-hmm. uh, later developments in uh, Heaven, Harmageddon, and I forget what the rest of the yeah, title is. Yeah, God, there. Heaven, and Harmageddon. Uh, that one's an interesting yeah. one. 
<laughs> yeah, so I can't necessarily comment on the specific developments uh, in, you know, in Klein's own thought, but in terms of my own thinking on the matter, you know, the way I see it is that um, uh, now I think everybody would agree with the principle that Israel in terms of typology and Israel in terms of the order of salvation, that the two are present and that somehow the two are harmonious and work together. Now, where the disagreement lies is, you know, I guess where the debate lies uh, in terms of how do those two exactly relate to one another. And one of the things that I've always told my students uh, when I was teaching before is that um, I think you see a, a little microcosm in Moses in that here Moses typologically is, uh, is a foreshadow of Christ. Uh, he is uh, the mouthpiece of God, and uh, yet for his disobedience, uh, he is barred from entering the promised land. Uh, and so you see that, I think, that typological function that for those who are disobedient, for those who you know, are not holy, who do not possess righteousness, then they won't enter the land. But at the same time, we see, I think, a division uh, in that we know that Moses uh, was saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, he appears on, Mount, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah talking with Christ. And so I, I think that, that we, I always try to keep him in mind, and so to say that at least uh, collectively, Israel as a whole is foreshadowing uh, Christ in his, uh, in, his, in his work. And I think you see a, a contiguous whole Again, talking about the organic nature of a revelation uh, in terms of, you know, Adam uh, in the garden, uh, who has said basically, you know, in not so many words, uh, not these exact words, but do this and live, and he disobeys, and he's, uh, he's placed in exile from the land. Collectively, as a whole, Israel is told, do this and live, and if you do, you'll be blessed, and they disobey, and, you know, they're in Deuteronomy 30, they're told by Moses, you're going to disobey, you're going to be taken into exile. And so they're, they're taken into exile. And I think in that picture you see, it's not only, can we, can, I think, can we say that the Scriptures collectively is the story of the, the probation of God's sons, uh, but in terms of Christ, it's not only the probation of God's son, but in contrast to Adam and Israel, uh, it's the successful probation of God's Son, right. and that in spite of his successful probation, uh, he is still cast into exile, mm-hmm. i.e. he bears the curse of the covenant for us so that we don't have to bear that curse. And right. there's even a, a, a powerful picture in that we don't see this so often, but you see Israel and Ezekiel lying in an exilic graveyard. Um, and, and it's, it's he, Israel collectively is, is portrayed as that valley of dry bones, and then God says to the prophet, speak to this valley of dry bones, and Israel collectively is resurrected. And again, I think you see that picture of, 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 of the foreshadow, or the type, type if you will, of Christ uh, placed into exile, or as the author of Hebrews says in 13th chapter, that he's crucified outside the camp. Uh, you know, again, outside, away from the presence of God, and he's raised. And so I think you see a a great picture there on on the big scale. And I don't think that that big, big scale picture uh, contradicts with the individual salvation uh, or the the salvation of individual Israelites, uh, like Jeremiah or the prophets who are faithful in the Mm -hmm. midst of Israel's collective disobedience. Daniel right. exper- had to experience the exile, although he was a he was a right. faithful individual. That's exactly. a really important important way to have that that layered uh, view or that understanding of uh, how the law functions individually uh, in the Ordo right. Salutis and how it functions in a his- in a Historia Salutis uh, exactly. nature typologically in the nation. Oh. Now, right, so I don't know how that compares with Klein. <laughs> yeah, I don't know too much either. I'm just vaguely familiar, uh, but I really appreciate that. That's very helpful. Thanks. Right. Can, can, can I ask a follow-up to that about actually now Murray's view of the covenant of grace and the place of the law? Because that's usually the two polar um, polar opposites is Murray and Klein within Reformed theology. I find myself somewhere in between. I'm not sure. You know, I'd like to consider myself Westminsterian, but um, I have quite a few friends who are not Kleinian per se, mm-hmm. but 
they would be more like Murray, and they want to argue because of the prologue. And now I'm going back to the prologue. They want to argue that the third use of the law is the primary use, and they'll quote Calvin out of the Institute and Burkhoff and others mm-hmm. who say things like, you know, third use is primary or principle. And the argument that one of my friends makes is that Israel covenantally was to be seen as a believing nation. And so God doesn't give the law to Israel as schoolmaster first and foremost. You seem to take it that he did. I take it that he did. Could you maybe explain um, as far as you understand what what Murray was getting at and, and maybe where you would differ with that? Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll make the caveat that I'm not a I'm not a Murray expert either. I know that others are far well, uh, far better well read on on Murray than I am. But I, I would say this, and I can't help but think that maybe that this is where some of the rub lies. In that, um, I think it's in that dynamic between the Historia and the Ordo Salutis, or the redemptive history on a big scale, and uh, the, you know the application of redemption to the individual in that um, I don't know that I see this, and maybe you guys can correct me on this, but I don't know that I see Murray so much focusing upon uh, how Israel functions typologically in right. relation to Christ, and, and his emphasis is much more, I think, uh, heavily weighted to the individual and to the application of redemption, and that's certainly an important and necessary um, uh, thing to look at, but I think that maybe what happens, and again, I'm just uh, kind of thinking out loud here, but maybe what happens is that those ordo salutis categories, I think people maybe try to apply them to uh, the nation of Israel as a whole. And I just, I don't know that you can talk in those categories or that you can apply the ordo salutis as a whole to an entire uh, collective uh, nation. Uh, it's one thing to say the invisible church. Uh, but uh, Israel was more than the invisible church. In our, you know, in our own the- systematic theological language, they were both the visible and invisible church together. Right. And so that's why I, I don't think that we can say that. And I, I, I can't help but think that that's where the, some of the confusion comes in. Um, because, uh, yeah, because again, you get faithful Israelites and you get unfaithful Israelites. And as a whole, typologically, uh, they're all carried off into exile. Uh, And so, uh, you know, uh, so I I think that that's where the rub lies, that maybe that's where Murray's emphasis uh, is helpful for the order of salvation, but it's not helpful when we're looking at the bigger picture. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. No, that does. Would you? Would you just as a follow-up question? Would you though say that um, schoolmaster is the principal use, or would you say all uses are principal, and that there's a an equal weight to all of them? Yeah, I think there's an equal weight to all of them. It just depends upon uh, what we happen to be talking about at the moment. Uh, if we're talking about, um, you know, let's say uh, conversion, well, then second use of the law is going to be primary. Uh, but if we're talking about Christian life, well, then, um, you know, then third use of the law is going to be primary. Uh, so I think in that respect, uh, you know, I'd, I'd want to look at Calvin again. Uh, and look in the context as to what he's addressing. Is he addressing the Christian life? And if he's addressing Christian life, then I think, well, then sure, certainly, uh, right. third use of the law, and I would agree with him and those kinds of conclusions. But if we're talking conversion, uh, then I think we'd probably say, well, no, the second use comes into play a little bit more here than, than third use. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think see it as more of a both and rather than an either or. And so maybe that makes me a fence sitter. And maybe that means <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think that's great. No, no, John. I that, think that was a great answer. Yeah, I'm up there with you. <laughs> mm, <that's laughs> okay, well, good. <laughs> Well, John, I wanted to ask you, we got a question from the chat room here. I think it's an interesting one. Um, When we're talking about how we interpret the law, uh, the question is, do you think the law is interpreted differently uh, depending on the culture that we find ourselves in? Do we, should we, is there any relativistic fashion or should, should certain interpretations of the law depend on the culture? Um... Would that be in respect to the third use of the law? Or, or the oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I'm thinking maybe uh, 
you know, uh, I'm, an, I'm inclined to answer this pretty simply one way, but, uh, you know, part of the problem is what we find is really many people have, in my estimation, taken a certain interpretation of the fourth commandment because of cultural mm-hmm. reasons. So I don't know if there's any validity to that, or just in general, do you find uh, that we should take a variety of approaches or, or that certain interpretations might depend on cultural context? Right. You know, one of the more helpful things, and I think it's a simple distinction, uh, I think R.C. Spose, I don't know that he's probably the, the one that uh, made the distinction, but he talks about the difference of principle versus uh, culture. And, you know, he always says that when there's a, a doubt, if we're questioning whether something is cultural or something is principial, then we should always err on the side of being principial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, so I think that that's the first general observation to make. But in terms of the law itself, you know, I guess it just, yeah, I'm not saying there's a, it's relativistic, but rather I think it just depends upon the specific nature of the question. You know, in other words, yeah. context is, is always crucial. So, like, for example, I know of missionaries who go into other cultural contexts where unbelievers have uh, more than one wife. Uh, and so uh, if we just took uh, a, a bald reading of the law, we might say, well, no, that's adultery. Therefore, if you become a Christian, you have, you know, you need to only have one wife. Well, no, I think culturally in that context, we'd say, okay, no, you've committed to uh, to these women, so you you have to, as a believer now, uh, and assuming that your wives stay with you and become believers, then you have an obligation to them, and you would t- to divorce any one of them would be a violation of the law. Uh, but that means that you're prohibited from being an elder in the church. Because you're not uh, the wife, or I'm sorry, you're not the uh, husband of one wife. But in that context, we would say, well, no, you need to, you know, you need to uh, to maintain those vows that you took. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we're talking in that same context, the young man comes and says, I want to marry two women, then you say, no, sure. <laughs> you can't, uh, because that would be adulterous. Uh, and you know, as a believer, you're supposed to marry only one woman. So that's why I say that it depends on the, I guess it depends on the particular situation. Um, and oftentimes, and here's where I'm hoping, I'm hopefully working on a follow-up, is that uh, the law and its application calls for wisdom. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm taking, I'm working with some material that I did on preaching through Ecclesiastes uh, and trying to work on um, uh, showing people that sometimes the law doesn't give us all of the answers and it calls for wisdom, uh, and wisdom is, you know, the mind of Christ ultimately. In you know Colossians two, uh, Paul tells us that all of the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ. And so, in that respect, I think that uh, oftentimes when there are no clear signposts, uh, then that's where it calls for wisdom in the application of uh, the law, uh, whether it's the first or third use of the law or whatever it might be. I don't know if that's getting at the at the question. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think so. If as far as I understood it. Um, that was an interesting okay. example you gave us because I would be just inclined to say, well, no, it's that they're, they're principles that that transcend culture and it's God's, mm-hmm. it's a reflection of God's character. Uh, but you do get right. into some interesting binds uh, when you're speaking of what unbelievers have done in other cultures and then becoming believers. Uh, that's an interesting. Sure. One. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, yeah, very difficult sometimes, and that's not to say uh, I, I, we always have all the answers. But yeah, I think there are some. Um, you know, some Gordian knot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another question I had was on the, the second commandment, which is typically a, a pretty hot topic in Reformed churches, sure. and people have different views on whether we should have, you know, visual depictions of Christ, and clearly I think the Reformed world is at a consensus that definitely not in any worship service, uh, but sure. people are of different interpretations of and different understandings of of uh, films and children's books. I'm of the opinion that we should not have any visual representations whatsoever. But one thing that you mentioned was that God retains his copyright over his image. Could you unpack that for us? I really appreciated how you put that. Yeah. You know, it's something that uh, I think what really struck me, and so I was studying this and preparing not only to deliver the sermons, but then eventually uh, putting the book together, uh, and it didn't strike me until I was just listening to somebody else talk about image and likeness, and they were talking about second commandment and in terms of you know no no visual depictions of of, of the Trinity. And I agree, I agree with that principle entirely. 
but I think it just left uh, left me wanting more in the sense that I wanted to say, well, is there anything more? You know, in other words, asking that, that same simple question again, what about Christ? And it was particularly image and likeness that kept on bouncing around in my mind, and it came back to, you know, Genesis 1.28, image and likeness, image and likeness. Uh, Genesis uh, uh, 5.1, image and likeness, image and likeness. Uh, and then, of course, the numerous passages uh, in the New Testament talking about uh, Christ being the express image uh, of God. And so in that respect, I think it, you know, the, the, the what about Christ question came up rather forcefully in my mind to say, well, um, not only are we not supposed to make any images of God, because whatever image we make of him is always going to fall short, uh, because he's not a creature uh, uh, like an animal or a four-footed beast, as Paul would say, say in Romans 1, but uh, rather um, he's, uh, you know, he's spirit, and we can't make an image of what we uh, can't see. And so that, that's, that's chief. But if we also keep in mind that uh, Christ is the eternal image of God, uh, then that shows us that that role, if you will, of the image of God is taken and has been taken. And so that's what I talk about in terms of his copyright. You can't, you can't make a copy of that. Uh, he holds the, uh, Christ holds that exclusive right to bear that image eternally. And what I think, in my mind, is so amazing uh, and it's really humbling when you begin to think about it and, and meditate upon it, is that so often we're looking to make images of Christ for whatever reason, uh, and some with poor intention and others with good. I can remember going to a retreat center where this retreat center has this huge um, carving of Jesus on the door, and Jesus' hand is the doorknob. Uh, and... Uh, I just think, oh, goodness, this is, uh, you know, this is just so sad. And what I wanted people to realize is that we don't need to make images of Christ. We don't need to make images of God or anything like that, because the amazing thing is he is making his image in us. Uh, yes. And so that if you want to see an image of Christ, so to speak, look at the person sitting next to you in the pew. Yes. Um, that, uh, that to me is, is very amazing and very humbling that we would be blessed to be able to bear that image, and so that anything we might make, uh, whether it's uh, James Caviezel <laughs> in The Passion of the Christ, or, or, uh, or drawings, or, or whatever it might be, they just pale in comparison uh, to uh, God making us in His image uh, and to reflect the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. So uh, that, to me, I think is just, that's, again, that, that asks the what about Christ uh, in relationship to the Second Commandment. And so it's not just about prohibition, uh, but rather it's so much more, there's so much more there in the light of Christ. And I just wanted to convey that to, uh, you know, to, to people reading the book and to my congregation. You know, John, I thought it was also interesting the way you talked about when we try to make an image, um, we are trying to exercise control over God, which I had yes. never really thought about. And you go into the golden calf at the foot of the mountain, and Israel's yes. trying to make a depiction of Yahweh, which is a fairly well-known you know, account. Um, but they are trying to control who he is. And yet, what you're saying, and I, th I thought that was fascinating, about Jesus being the image of God and him renewing that in us, and and then even in the supper being the the image as you said yes. if you want if you want a visual god gives us the lord's supper that is him ha having control over us and us honoring mm -hmm. him saying yes lord we do this your way um right. so i thought that was a very fascinating way you approached that yeah and in the end too this is the other thing that i, I can't remember uh, what i said specifically i'd have to go back and read it but uh is the, uh, is the fact that it's not a bad thing to want to see Christ. It's not a bad thing to want to see, uh, you know, to, to see our Lord and Savior. But um, it's a question of timing and submitting humbly to His will. Right? The, the idea, again, is He's sovereign, we're not. And rather than uh, be like Israel and make the golden calf, and, 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 and Aaron says, here is Elohim, uh, instead, no, we say, okay, Lord, we'll wait for your timing when faith will give way to sight. Uh, but until then, we have the Lord's Supper, we have, in essence, one another, uh, as we see the image of Christ being renewed in us, uh, you know, through the work of Christ in the Spirit. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, hopefully that's a helpful insight to people as they read. John, I wanted to know, just personally, what other books b besides um, 
your book would you recommend to our listeners on the Ten Commandments that you found to be helpful sections in systematic theologies or, or just a- anything that you've found to be very helpful in this regard? Yeah, I think uh, one of the ones, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name right, is uh, Joachim Duma, uh, The Ten Commandments, published by PNR. Oh, Joachim um, Dalma. Dalma, okay, I figured yeah. I was going to butcher it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I, now that I'm around a bunch of Dutchmen out here, I have to start learning how to pronounce Dutch names. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, thought about, I thought about changing my name to John Van Fesco just so I could say yeah. it a little bit better. Vander, Vander but, uh, Fesco of the Fesco. Van- <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's one of the names there, uh, or so one of the books I found helpful. Uh, I think uh, Calvin's exposition of uh, of, uh, of the law. I think it's in a little book of sermons that he's done. I think it's translated by Benjamin uh, Farley. I think is his name. Uh, that's another yes. helpful little book. Um, those are the two that that come off the, uh, off the top of my mind or off the top of my head. Um, and then a lot of other little places here and there, um, you know, just little books that I, I think that they just mentioned things here and there. Uh, but, um, yeah, those two I think are primary that I would I find very helpful, I thought. And, of course, one of the best ones, or two, two of the most helpful ones as well, not books per se, but uh, how to work catechism and the Westminster Standards and the, the larger catechism especially. Oh, yeah quite expansive and helpful and you can't accuse the uh, the the uh, Westminster divines of thinking too lightly upon the law. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're uh, very very in depth so those two catechisms I found particularly helpful as well. Well, this has been great. We want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate this book and your and the, we appreciate you taking the time to discuss this asking letting us ask some difficult questions. So, thanks for your time, John. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me, and uh, God willing, I look forward to future times with oh, you yeah. guys as well. Yeah. yeah, we also want to thank Reformation Heritage Books again. Uh, you can uh, pick this book up from your local Reform book distributor uh, as it uh, is available. We also want to let you know about ReformedForum.org. If you don't already, you can visit the archives there, listen to our older programs, one of which was our previous interview with John on his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Justification. It was an excellent interview discussing the relationship of biblical to systematic theology, discussing union with Christ and the Reformed approach to soteriology. All that is available at ReformedForum.org. Just click on Archives up toward the top. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back again on Christ the Center.